In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. There is a clear link between parenting styles and child behavioral and emotional well-being. As we observe the increase in anxiety, depression, and other mental health concerns, we explore some of the complex factors that may be influencing it. On today's podcast, we examine an emerging trend in American society in the past 25 years of over-involved, over-engaged, and over-protective parents. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. We are recording our 50th episode today. I am here in the studio with just Kelly. Yes, Sean is now on vacation. Sean is on vacation, but we have been consistent to try to release an episode every Thursday. And so we're in the studio, just the two of us, with a very interesting topic, one that you and I have been talking about for quite some time, knowing it's going to be a really critical piece of American culture that is influencing some of the topics that we've been talking about throughout the course of our podcast, parenting, resilience, mental health, response to mental health, psychiatric drugs, the dangers. So we're right in our wheelhouse, Kelly, me as a psychologist, you as a teacher. We know that there has always been a link between parenting style and child behavioral and emotional well-being. And there is certainly a emerging trend that has been part of American culture for the past 20, 25 years around intrusive parenting or over-parenting. It's uh, more commonly known as helicopter parenting. And the challenge today is for us to understand it both historically and as a construct in the greater field of both education and psychology. And to understand, I think, the psychology around that parenting. like How did we get here? What are the implications? What are the negative effects? Thoughts on yeah, helicopter parenting? Yeah, I mean, parenting? so this is going to be my 23rd, 24th year. I can't count. But uh, I can tell you that as, uh, as I've gone through, um, things have changed quite a bit. And I've seen, the res- as a result of parents, I think, showing a lot of love for their children, but doing it in a way that is kind of invasive to them becoming independent, you know, at, at, especially at an older level, at the high school level, and not realizing that um, without some of that independence, some of these kids can't actually move forward. Mm. And then you're seeing a larger trend, some of it's economics, but seeing a larger trend of, you know, people, students trying to move on maybe to college or in the workforce, but finding that they are not able to do so. And then they move back home. And so it just takes them a little bit longer, you know, to get to that point. But there's definitely a trend of parents that are what I would call over-parenting and thinking that that's the way to do things. Interesting story. I was talking to both a college uh, professor, a college administrator, and a college coach. Each one of them uh, provides very similar experiences over the past 15, 20 years. Things that were never observed in popular culture previously have been intensifying, where parents, in a way that's obviously not age appropriate because you're talking about young adults, college has always been that nice bridge mm-hmm. between being under your, you know, the monitoring of your parents into the workforce, college has been that that bridge. But you're seeing the intrusiveness of, of parents with constantly contact. We see this in high school. We see this in, in college where they're involved with professors even debating grades where there is something that is happening within parents. And you know what? Parents are our generation. It's Generation X. Right. Where there is such a fear of 
their kids failing or being rejected or struggling, that they are attempting to try to prevent them from experiencing those responses or reactions. To me, it almost seems, Kelly, like like there is a, a blurred boundary between the experience of their kid and their own experiences where they're so involved in an emotional way to try to open doors for them that maybe weren't there for them. So the success of their child is directly correlated with their own way of viewing success, right? So if you always have this with sports where you have parents standing on the sideline who may have been, they may have played the sport, but now they want to see their child completely excel. And the only way to do that is either to be incredibly demanding, mm. right? And, and trying to control, getting involved with coaches, arguing, trying to mow down any issue or problem that the, you know, that the child has. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to get into some details. Let's, uh, let's set the stage here with just discussing um, parental style and its impact on emotional well-being. One area where the field of psychology, I think, has done really well is providing strong evidence in, uh, you know, developmental milestones and needs and where do kids do well versus where do kids struggle. So one of the things that is really important when you look into the, into the research is that parents who have been both engaged and supportive um, while offering kind of age-appropriate and supporting age-appropriate autonomy Seem to seems to correlate really, really well right. with kids who are going to grow up and accept responsibility and um, be able to respond well to the adverse conditions that life brings. So, you know, you need that parental responsiveness and engagement, but also a level of accountability that exists for fostering maturity and responsibility. So there's a balance almost. You almost have to find that middle path where you're not too permissive, and you're not too controlling. You are supportive and engaged. You are not completely avoidant and disengaged. But a new type has kind of emerged over the past 20 years, which you know characterizes both support, but over-involvement, over-engagement, and being much more overprotective. That's the helicopter parent. It represents parenting that tends to be high on warm, warmth and support, which we know is really effective sure right but also high on control and low on granting autonomy and you know the thing that really you know strikes me is if you look back at generations we'll look back at generation x and and previous generations and i'm really interested in your perspective on this as a teacher it used to be that the responsibility tended to fall on on the kid right so if your grades faltered or uh, maybe you didn't make the team or you were struggling, you know, socially or so forth. The parents would bring the attention, you know, to the kid as, as recognizing that there's a, there's a deficit in some way. It could be in discipline. It, it could be in, uh, you know, work ethic or certain skill-based deficits. And relationally, could be some behavioral problems that parents needed to be involved in. And I think what we see with the helicopter parenting is they tend to bring the attention and the responsibility to those that are involved in the child's life. Correct. Yeah. So fair, fair statement. That's a fair statement. Like are teachers more, I've lived it. Teachers are more likely to get blamed when their kid doesn't do well. Coaches are more likely to be blamed if the individual doesn't either make the team or get enough playing time or perform as well, or other parents um, or kids even get blamed if their kids are, are struggling socially. So there's like that intrusive involvement in all areas of the, of, of their kids' lives where the attention and focus is on other adults, even like antibacterial soap. You are 99.9% correct on that. <laughs> There is no doubt in my mind that when any student that I've had in 20 odd years has gone through any type of a, a struggle, a failure, something where I had to have a conversation with, and I'm really, I, I, I think I'm very good at, you know, communicating because it's all about building relationships. So what I try to do is 
get them to understand, you know, listen, you didn't do well this time. We'll work harder. We'll do some effort. And, you know, maybe you don't have another chance on this one, but let's, let's get it next time, right? I would get a phone call or an email stating, you know, my son came home and said, they were, you know, you talked to him about this. I don't know that it's fair that he can't actually retake this or redo this right now. He said that you could move ahead and, you know, that you were going to do it. So here I am trying to foster the fact that you struggled and you failed and that's okay. Now let's build it back up. Whereas the parent looks at it like he failed. I want him back on this and I want the grade. And, it, and it's your fault if you're not going to do it. Mm. And then you get even more. Uh, some parents will, will go above you. You know, they'll, they'll copy in your principal or your some will copy in superintendent. And, and it puts you in a position as a teacher, just be like, well, geez, I didn't think what I did was wrong, but it makes you question everything. And then, of course, you have to protect yourself. So you end up either caving or you end up fighting. And most people, you're going you're gonna to cave because it's your job. You yep. don't mean to do anything wrong, but that parent protected that kid. And, um, and that's usually the, a lot of times it's communication. Yeah. It's fascinating because it has to impact the, the teacher. Cause at some point they, you must, in order to be able to adapt, you True. almost have to sometimes lower some, you lower, you lower expectations. And as you get older as a teacher, that's, that, that tends to be kind of sometimes what happens is the lowering of expectations. Um, what, and which is the exact opposite of what you should be doing as mm. a teacher. You should be raising expectations and putting it into a way where a kid wants to reach that goal, right? And if they don't, they're okay with not doing it, but there were other goals that they did meet. They just didn't get to this one. But yes, I think education as a whole has lowered, lowered expectancy. And for me, it's always trying to answer the question, why? Like, so we have to get into the psychology of these parents what would you say the percentage? Obviously, it's not everybody. Um, this does not certainly represent, you know, probably a majority of the kids in your classroom, but maybe a percentage, right? What would, what would you say the percentage of uh, kids have kind of these helicopter hovering parents? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out some actual evidence-based stuff in the Locke uh, paper that I read. Um, what they found out of interviewing these parents that chose to do it is 80, I believe 84, 87% have experienced at least one moment where they observed uh, helicopter parenting occurring. So if I went off of that number, basically, I would, I'm going to, that's not bad. I'd say the majority of, of, of the students that, you know, you may see in a given year at some point, you know, they will have experienced some sort of an intervention by a parent. So I, I guess we look at it as kind of probably like on a spectrum, you know, mm -hmm. to, to, to a certain degree. And then there's this new concept of lawnmower parenting. Um, what's the difference between lawnmower parenting and helicopter parenting? So helicopter parenting is kind of like, you know, you are flying and hovering over and watching out and being very careful for anything that might occur to the student. And when it does, you're in there to fly in and save the day. Lawnmower parenting is a bit more extreme, but I'm seeing a lot more of it. Lawnmower, at least with helicopter parenting, the struggle might have happened and they wait and then they, you know, they'll talk to him at night and they'll say, I'll, I'll help you take care of this. A lawnmower parent will not even allow a struggle to exist. It's as if the kid's pathway can never have a weed in it. They will walk ahead of that, that kid and pull every single weed. And unfortunately, by the time they're 18, 19, 20, because they've never experienced any kind of, um, for lack of a better metaphor, weed or problem or struggle, they have no idea how to react to it. Mm. And they, you know, at that point in time, when you're 20, 21, 22, even 30s, that's when you don't want to have um, a massive failure, right? You want to be able to be resilient and move forward on a pathway towards success. I was reading this interesting paper about the changes in parenting, um, you know, over the past 50, 60 years. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about in here is how American society has shifted where there's many more um, two-income family homes. So both parents are actually out of the home working. Mm -hmm. So you would think that would actually lead to like less engagement and involvement in, in kids. But some of the research suggests that there is more parental engagement now than there was like back in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Now, I wonder how can that, that be? Yeah. Um, and because it's lack of um, kind of that independent play. Like even when you think back, I look back like growing up as a younger kid in the 80s, 
you know, I was able to just leave the home and go amongst the neighborhood. Sure. And to travel around and see like what kids were playing or doing what. And when I think back at even my youth sports, although my father was involved with, with some coaching, it was much less controlled than it is currently. And so it shocks me that parents are b- as busy as, as ever with two, uh, with two income homes, mm-hmm. but they're much more involved in things that they were never involved with, doing homework, um, structured play, play dates, um, you know, all the, all the youth sports. You, know, you have your boards and you have your AUs and you have your travel teams. And like, there's such a, a higher degree of engagement from parents than you know, 30, 40 years ago. And the question is, is that a good thing? Well, my obvious answer is I don't believe it's a good thing. I think the trend happens because we always go back to this, uh, this juggernaut of a problem in our country, media and social media. And they bring up a lot of fears and problems and things that people watch and see. And so if you're a young parent, you know, especially with your firstborn, you want, you're going to be a bit overprotective. Uh, obviously, you would love that child. But I think there's this weird fine line that you walk where you become over, not, no longer are you being a great parent and loving, you're being a controlling individual over your child. And that's the line you don't want to step across if you're being overly controlling versus overly loving. I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have a hard time finding where that line is. So let's define a little bit like what this behavior actually looks like. I started developing a list and you can kind of jump in there because mm-hmm. um, you, you read some of the research. I, just, I was kind of just like throwing things in there. Um, calling parents to resolve conflicts between their own children. That's definitely something that would fall under the realm of helicopter parenting yeah no doubt because previously you'd you'd let your kids work it out and you'd tell your kids go work it out right um they're involved in a lot of aspects of education like emailing the teachers grades checking everything on a portal being responsible for overseeing homework projects part of that deals with technology because remember in the last 15 20 years we've been able to actually put out the grades to directly to the houses mm-hmm. if you had it so part of that is not necessarily parents fault they become addicted to the fact that they can look at the child's grades all, all the time or they see what homework the child has so i'm not going to sit there and say that that might be that might just be a natural thing that we all get if we have information handy to us every day and we're going to look at it but that probably is a direct effect of having the ability and technology to do so. Contacting college professors and school administrators, intervening with roommate disputes at college, uh, refusing to grant age-appropriate autonomy as they mature. The college thing gets me because that literally is a transitional period of independence. You need to be able, if you're not going to struggle at the you know elementary middle school or high school levels, then let, let them struggle a little bit at the college level. Let them have a, you know, a candid conversation with the professor because they got to see, you know, let them work it out. Let them figure these, you know, and problem solve and see what works and what doesn't work in terms of communication. Because honestly, when parents continue to do that, I think the big thing that these children grow up with is a lack of ability to communicate with others. Yeah. You know what? I, I used to think that in a lot of ways, life begins to, uh, really shape behavior and imagine if when we were in college if one of our like parents intervened with somebody in our friend group or with a a professor i mean we'd be naturally punished for that behavior sure right like there's no way i would allow something like that to happen because of the consequences of me having to deal with it i mean you get made fun of i mean we're talking about high school even Mm -hmm. you get made fun of if your parents were too too much involved and you'd kind of made you vulnerable you know, and so you kept your parents at a, at a distance. Yeah. I, I, I have a 16 year old son right now and, uh, you know, I also have two, two older daughters, so I've been through this, but our 16 year old son is really good at providing you the least amount of information that you would need. You know, I, like I thought like in a previous life, he must've like, um, ratted out a friend or something like that and he's in a new life right now (laughs) and his soul's trying to learn less and like he keeps 
everything locked tight. You know, he locks it down. Gives you like the one word answers. How was your day? Oh, it was good. It was good. It's fine. Yeah. But even like when we know something, right? Like from talking to other parents or yeah. being aware of it, you know, we'll throw it out there. And he, unless you ask, ask him directly, he's not giving you any information. Right. Right. And that's part of growing up, you know, there needs to be a lot of things that happen outside of like parents, parent oversight and right. control. And our tolerance for that is like much, much less than it's, it's ever been. Now, since this is primarily generation X parents, you and I have to determine how did we get here and how is it a factor in some of the struggles we're seeing now with with mental health and resilience and so forth. So let's like, the, why the rise in overparenting? I mean, I, I, I can see a big discrepancy in like the way socioeconomic status of, of students. I, there is a bigger discrepancy. You know, you have income inequality, which could play a role in, you know, the way that parents are going to handle things. It raises the stakes, doesn't it? Sure. Like, and one of the things I read a very interesting article on the rise of income inequality in the United States and how that, you know, interferes culturally. So like one thing that is much different is that the competitiveness around like education and the job market mm. could be influencing, you know, parental fear and anxiety. So like there's certainly this energy around trying to provide your kids the best opportunities you know, we definitely see that in academics and sports more than ever. Like we're in a culture now where I think a lot of parents believe and that sports performance is going to give them a leg up or provide them scholarship opportunities um, for like division one schools, but they don't always, they're not always realistic about how a small percentage of, of these kids actually are going to reach that level. Yeah. And so you should be proud that they're involved with a lot of things. I think everybody should be, but you shouldn't be sitting there thinking my child is going to go to college to play sports because if you do that, that's where you're going to control them at practices. That's where you're going to intervene. But remember, what are you really having them involved for? You're having them involved so they can, again, learn to struggle, have a, a collaboration and cooperation between teammates, teamwork. As you saw in the Little League World Series last two weeks ago or three weeks ago, there's a great clip of a you know, a young, a young man who was pitching and hit the kid in the head and the kid, he's crying. These are little kids and walks over. That's sportsmanship. Yeah. That's a, it was a great moment in, in, in our sports history right there. That's exactly why you get kids involved with sports, right? You don't get them involved as a goal immediately to say, you're going to go to college and play sports. So life skills, you yeah. know, if you see it as opportunities to, you know, learn very important life skills, obviously to be, to be active as well. We do see that pressure, right? These pressures are, this pressure is being placed on coaches, coaches who are like coaching elementary school kids, mm -hmm. you know, junior high kids. It's an unrealistic pressure. And so part of it could certainly be economic. There is without a doubt rising income inequality in the Western world, United States culture. And so I think, you know, one theory, our parents are responding to changes in incentives uh, essentially like concerning the economic environment, which children will live as adults. Um, but like what has happened that makes parents increasingly more obsessed with what their children are up to? And one of the things that like really came to mind, and, and I think about this when I see how emotionally um, invested they are. Like it's not just, it's just, it's it, if it was just sports and academics, then I would, certainly buy that theory but kelly we actually see it socially where like parents will get involved with their social disputes or if their kid is struggling with something within their friend group that they almost get like this anger at the parent or the kid and they intervene and that is where like psychologically like we have to make sense of what is happening between parents and children that were not necessarily happening in previous generations. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. Again, social media, um, the compar the comparison of your family versus another family. Oh, wait, talk about that. So, 
I know quite a few people that will post everything about their child, especially with sports, but more academics. And they put it up there and then they get their little hearts and likes and I'm sure they feel good about it. And by the way, congratulations. I mean, if your child did that, but why are you really posting it, right? Are you posting it to share with family members because you don't, because that was the original point of Facebook, right? To reach out to people that you haven't seen in a while. Now it's become this kind of status. I'm going to post a picture of my child wearing a medal and I'm going to put it up there and I'm going to get lots of likes and loves and hearts. Well, that's great. But when you suddenly look at another person's picture or another person, I think there are people that view that picture and their child doesn't have a medal. And then they're like, well, what, what am I doing wrong here? Right. And they start to question themselves as parents. Um, and maybe then at that very little age at five, then they go, you know what, you're going to play baseball next year. And that's where I think the control begins, right? Cause they remember the pictures. They remember all the people that are doing exceptionally well well, now you got to be what that kid is. And I'm going to force that on you by putting you in, in this and this and this. And now you have to keep going and going. And I just think that th there is a large portion of parenting that comes from these weird social media posts, experts in our culture, for example, things like that, right? Telling us how to parent, telling us what to do. In fact, hey, look, be open. We're doing a podcast on helicopter parenting. And we're, well, I don't want anybody to think that we're the perfect parents. As a matter of fact, I think a perfect parent is an imperfect parent. You're able to actually understand that you're going to fail. You're going to have bad days. Um, we're not, right? I don't, I don't ever want anybody to think that I think I am, but I can tell you this, social media expert culture in the United States of America is really kind of screwing up people's intuition, which, which I wish people would go back to. You have an intuition as a parent, your intuition, trust it right? It comes with love. It comes with care. The expert culture, the social media culture in our country is fucking up our parents. Interesting points. I have a theory about this. I want to run it by you. And I'm glad you brought up the role of the, the expert culture of the United States. And let me, let me define that. If you even go back to like the nineties and two thousands, the television morning shows, uh, what's on magazines, and obviously now the pundits on American television. We flood the American market with quote-unquote experts. And some of the dialogue around this is more and more about how parents can fuck up their kids, mm -hmm. right? So I think there's more of an enmeshment between a, a child and their parents. And that's a psychological term. That's like this over-connectedness with the, with the kid, where your kid's presentation and accomplishments and well-being is tied to who you are as a parent. So if, you are, if your kid is doing well, they're in honors classes, they made the team, they're on the all-star team, they're on this path, then you're good as a person, right? Mm -hmm. And if not, it's re somehow representative as who you are as a parent. Now, in some cases, this is obviously true because we're talking about how uh, parenting styles impact emotional well-being. But in a lot of situations, it's not always true because they're so separate from us. Right. You know, that kids are influenced by so many factors and we can only control so much and they're independent. Go ahead. You know, other, other aspects of this expert culture where we can talk about the interlink between, you know, parent enmeshment and what is bombarded in American culture is I think when, when kids begin to, to struggle... It almost seems like, Kelly, the parents can't tolerate that experience, which drives them to go and turn to uh, like a physician. So you're saying if I watch uh, my own son, who's now 12, you know, struggles on the uh, baseball field and has a horrible game, and this has been now the sixth game in a row where it's been horrible. Mm. Uh, you're saying that if I, I can't, as a parent, I'm not able to cope with my own child's struggle. Therefore, I need... I feel as if I need to seek help. So, well, so think about it this way too. Not only like the, the problems on the baseball diamond, but, you know, the struggles in, in classroom. It might not even be struggles, Kelly. It could just be like not being in the top level reading or math class. That parents of this type have a hard time tolerating the experience of their kids not being on the trajectory or the path that they think so, that they that they want them to be, and if that enmeshment exists, it's a lot easier to obtain some diagnosis that uh, somehow 
uh, justifies their poor performance. So the rise of diagnoses like ADHD, um, we know from working together in the schools, how many parents would try to uh, have educational testing to identify like a, a learning disability that there was such an over identification of a learning disability. Any perceived weakness was then called a, a disability. Mm-hmm. So there had to be something inherently wrong with the kid um, as a way to maybe protect the parent. I think this is part of the rise in prescription psychiatric drugs for such a young population because they're going for this quick fix. There's this idea or, or um, that there is something wrong with their kid that can get uh, c- that can get quick can get fixed quickly mm-hmm. through some drug. We're in this fast food style of uh, of service of medical care in the United States. So I, I do think there is a link between emotional tolerance for kids' struggles and the rise in psychiatric diagnoses and drugs. So what do parents do about that? I mean, if they feel because you're going to feel naturally, um, if a child is struggling, right, Mm -hmm. you're going to have certain negative emotions that are going to come out. You're going to, I mean, I guess if you're a good parent, you're going to kind of look at yourself first and go, what am I doing here that, you know, is wrong? Is there just kind of a distortion that happens in the thinking about that moment where maybe a a parent that's not a helicopter parent would say, well, maybe I could change something a little different and we could see how he does after this versus, oh my God, the freak out, right? This is it. You know, he can't do anything. And then they get in, then they try to intervene. Fear-based culture that we live in, you know, it drives all parents to like, what is the worst case kind of circumstance? And their mind gets kind of hooked on that. I think that there needs to be more people out there in, in my field or in the educational field where we talk about what is normal and what is expected we have to increase the tolerance for normal struggle and we have to get parents to kind of relax, right? This is one snapshot in time. Let's look at it as an opportunity not to define who your kid is, but yet an opportunity for growth. This, this leaning towards a, the medicalization of human struggle is partially related to this concept you know, this intolerance for what inevitably is going to happen to everybody, which is to be rejected, to struggle, to fail. If you don't have tolerance for it, you're going to look to label it in some way to kind of protect you. And it doesn't serve you well. You know, they don't understand that a lot of these constructs are just arbitrarily defined. And now we're in this expansion of all this criteria, which leads people to believe that there's something inherently wrong with them. It doesn't serve you well in the long term. But in the short term, it might alleviate some guilt or shame from you as a parent believing that you're doing something wrong. Well, my, my kid has ADHD. That's why that happened. That's why they're struggling. They have, a, they have a math disability. That's why they're not in the highest class. So if we pull everything together, the social media, Facebook generation where everyone's highlights are being you know, a snapshot and sent out to the world, it can leave parents feeling like their kids are behind when in reality, they're not. And so we have to get much, much better at normalizing the range, the diversity of human experience. Nobody's great at everything. You know, people have some unique skills, but they also have weaknesses. And that plays itself out throughout childhood. If your expectation is to be, you know, top A student in the top class of every subject, does that really fit how the human mind even, you know, works or you know if our if our kids are not afforded the opportunity to make mistakes think about the stress and the anxiety and the pressure that's going to exist in the in the home environment another reason why kids get really good at you know diverting blame towards other people because it's in it's not tolerated in their home so i think this creates an anxiety in parents that they are and we're talking about the helicopter ones. They're the ones that get so overly involved because it's fear of their own failure. And they have guilt. And over the past 30 or 40 years, you know, probably longer, but there is a lot of fear that is being provoked in American culture and society. I, you know, I think being on social media and exposure to the news is absolute poison because think about all the things that have gone on that are going to influence a parent which we're bombarded with every single day school shootings Mm -hmm. 
bullying. No doubt. Adults harming kids, pedophiles, teachers having sex with students, abusive coaches, child abduction. Then there's the deaths by despair in the United States, drug addiction, suicide. And so when you talk about the rise of the internet and the rise of social media, one of the things that certainly has happened is that is the rapid transmitting of information on a global scale. So we are exposed to so many more fear provocative images, stories, and wouldn't you say that's powerful in how we choose to respond to our kids? There's no, there's no doubt that it's powerful in how we respond. In fact, if you look at it from that perspective and I'm watching all of that on a daily basis, I just have a child, a newborn child, I suddenly see everything. My reality obviously changes and I have to now raise this child in a world where I'm being bombarded with absolute negativity, even though this is still one of the most peaceful times in our, in our history, right? When you raise that child, if all you're seeing are those negative images, think about it. You are going to try to control, right? And cut yeah. down any anything that comes their way. So part of the problem of the of this helicopter parenting lawnmower parenting and why it's so rampant right now is most i would say that that's probably got to be a top two is social media fear-mongering so exposure to these images leads to an overestimation and actual risk sure like if you actually look at some crime data there's less crime and it's safer now than it was when we grew up that's that's correct yeah and but we would never think about it emotionally because of how it's framed to us now, we came across an interesting clip um, regarding, and this is like an example of, of helicopter parenting. Why don't you play this and we can comment on okay. it. The generation above us, I don't know if you feel this way, the parents or, grand, or the grandparents constantly say, oh gosh, the parents nowadays, you guys are helicopter parents, you're hovering. I don't know if they really understand how much we have to hover. And that's the sad thing. Kids are not able to run and make mistakes on their own because it is captured for the world to see. Mm -hmm. And they're really just for lack of a better word, I mean, stupid mistakes. They're dumb. And they, you know, they're just doing something without stopping and thinking. There's no pause. And they just want a quick reaction. And we ha it just leads to no choice. We have mm -hmm. to be on them all the time. But and thank God social media wasn't around because, I mean, I'm 40 now. And I just, I mean, all the stuff we got into, you know, I mean. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I had that conversation with every you. single friend of mine that is like, thank God there was not social media when I was in high school or college or whatever. <laughs> Isn't that borderline hypocritical where she sits there and says that? But part of the reason they are the way they are today is because they went through those issues and problems, right? And then she's like trying to stigmatize what they went through at the high school level, all the mistakes they made, the bad things they did. And here we are, they're laughing and giggling about it saying, well, at least I can control every aspect of my child's life now and they will never have to go through what I went through even though I'm a resilient human being and successful. Yeah, it's the justification of the behavior as if they're doing something that is helpful they're preventing their kids from from harm now they can use social media as justification but still most people you know do hand use social media responsibly and you have to learn from your mistakes like i don't know how else that you're going to learn how to navigate this world without exposure to the complex problems that exist with it and so if you're going it that was an that was from a usa today article mm -hmm. on how parents don't allow kids to sleep over Oh my you know? gosh, really? Yeah. So that, like that was the premise of this, like that justification of not letting your kids sleep over other homes to almost protect themselves, protect them from all the bad things or negative things that could happen. But think about that message for one second before we move on here. You're telling your child sleepovers are bad, which means going to anybody else's house other than mine is bad. Aren't you really just, isn't, isn't helicopter parenting, lawnmower parenting just about creating adversity where, where it doesn't exist? Cre you're, yeah. you're creating the problems for the children. They, they don't see it that way. Okay. So I, I wonder if it's also like um, they're kind of over accommodating for some of the struggles that they had growing up. Do you remember latch, the concept of latchkey kids? So latchkey kids were kids that um, were given the home key because parents, both parents worked and no one was home for maybe an hour or two. So they had to go home, get in and take care of themselves for a couple hours before mom and dad got home, right? Yeah, Com coming home from school to an empty house, yeah. which in the 80s was relatively new in American society. Mm. You often came home to a stay-at-home mom. Uh, rarely was there a stay-at-home dad. So it was a new phenomenon in the 80s into the early 90s. 
And uh, a lot of parents kind of maybe are over-accommodating for maybe the guilt that they feel from having to be in the workforce or not always being attentive to all their kids. And so when they do have the ability to be attentive, um, they're overly involved. And, uh, you know, I think that's possibly one of the things that is happening. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So let's talk a little bit about, all right, we've kind of in a weird way bashed the uh, idea of helicopter parenting, but that's not the point because I think we all as parents and even you, Roger, at some point, maybe you did helicopter over your kid on occasion. Maybe you did lawn mow. So I don't want to give the impression that, you know, again, we're perfect parents. I think everybody, it's like a spectrum. I think sometimes you will do it depending upon the situation. Mm-hmm. But I guess why we brought this up today is why it, why it's so harmful. Yeah. yeah. Like why are, we, why are we talking about this on this podcast? And, and, and we always want to talk about things that will help our lives, fulfill our lives, so why bring this up? Because as a teacher, I believe it's harmful. Am I wrong? No, you're, you're right. In a recent report from the National Survey of College Counseling Centers, so that's, you know, you're 18 to 22-year-olds there, 89% of the directors report an increase in student anxiety disorders, 58% report an increase in student clinical depression, 35% an increase in self-injury. Um, here we are in a, a mental health clinic, and my center, you know, obviously we're seeing, a, you know, an increase in... Uh, mental health needs. And, you know, it's pretty widely accepted at this point. It's, it's not just about the pandemic. It's, it's a lot of different factors over the past 25 years Mm -hmm. that are leading to the rise in suicide, uh, depression, psychiatric drug use. But some of the things, you know, the harms that are created, and we can draw a link here, is when that you restrict the independence of, of youth, you're also restricting and limiting learning opportunities. So think about, you know, I, I was watching Bill Maher uh, on HBO mm-hmm. uh, this past weekend. And he brings up some like really interesting points about how shift in American culture impacts youth. Do you remember like w- without cell phones and without texting, you'd have to call your friends and then you might, you know, their parents might answer the phone. Yeah. And then you have to have a conversation with their <laughs> parents, just some like normal, polite, you know. Hi, Mrs. Weatherhold. How are you? This is Roger. Can I speak with Kelly? You know, right, you learn right. some of these social skills. Same thing about like going to homes. You know, when 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 play was more free, you know, going to someone's home, can Kelly come out and play? Playing a game, violating the rules, figuring it out, getting in a fight, trying to repair. Like all the subtleties of American life where you would learn these various social skills and problem-solving skills get restricted when parents are involved. Remember, like, even think about the impact now that Amazon has. Now we can just, like, pick what we want and it gets sent to our doorstep. Sure. So we live in more and more of an isolated society. We used to go to the malls. Teenagers love to go to the malls. It was like a local hangout. It's like engagement. You get time away from your parents. A lot of that stuff is kind of restricted now. Sports, you know, it was your coach and it was all your team. Mm-hmm. Now all the parents sit around and they practice. W- they watch the practice, yeah. As if they're monitoring everything that is going on right. with their kid to make sure your kid gets all these opportunities and it's fair and it's free. Like we're really restricting or limiting our abilities to develop age-appropriate social skills and problem-solving skills. Yeah. To me, without a doubt, that has an impact on later autonomy, independence, and mental health. So what what co- what's the cost then if they go through their life and they're that? And I mean, is it ultimately going to end up being um, depression? Is it ultimately going to end up being anxiety? And I have one more question: the parents that are doing this, isn't there a possibility that they're 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 anxious about what's happening with their own child? But isn't that anxiety kind of almost contagious to the child and passing it on? No doubt. Yeah. Like when you look at childhood, young childhood um, anxiety disorders, there is a very strong link between parental anxiety and over control, and uh, later development and early development of childhood anxiety disorders, because it is the parent that is one communicating danger, right? And we learn through observation. So the, so the parents are communicating this risk, which is certainly impacting how the, how the child internalizes uh, their world. And then through the over-control strategies, which is control and avoidance, they're not learning how to respond when they experience that, attend, that intense emotion. 
So it certainly is increasing a rise in anxiety. Mm. I think that's without a doubt clear in American society. I, I kind of wrote what I believe is to be a recipe for mental health problems. Okay. Overestimating danger, loss, and rejection combined with underestimating one's ability to cope and problem solve. So parents are communicating that the world is dangerous, but more importantly, Kelly, that their kids are unable to deal with the problems. So the lack of exposure to figuring out, they're probably right. You know, not only are they intervene, they are intervening, that, you know, kids are getting to be 18, 19, 20 years old, and they just don't have the experience on how to get through something. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to learn how to fail. And when you learn how to fail, you have that history that will suggest, hey, I've been through this before, right? Sure. I know how to get through this. And I think you're just parents who are of that lawnmower and helicopter type. They're just restricting that ability to do that. Well, it's really crazy is that if a kid comes home with a failing grade or they didn't do something, you know, in, in that moment, it's a very good teachable moment, right? I mean, it's okay. Let's talk a little bit about why you know, why this happened? Did you put the work into it? Mm-hmm. Um, could, did you prepare? Uh, did you not understand? There are questions you can ask without getting angry, without getting vicious. And instead, you have people that don't want to talk to their child about that, use it as a teachable moment, encourage. Instead, they just want to email the teacher, mm-hmm. you know, saying, yeah, you know, he said it was an unfair test. And let's think about what, what kids learn in that situation they know that their parents will bail them out. Yeah. Obviously they don't want to be dis- they don't want to their parents to be disappointed in them. They don't want their life to be restricted, which is mostly screens now. Mm-hmm. So it's very they get really good at making excuses. And those excuses are often pointing the finger because they see that reaction. And the parents are so overprotective of their kids' emotion that this has become Um, like a skill that they've developed to divert responsibility away from them, which we know is going to be a real problem in the workforce. Yeah. Because once you get out into the workforce, it's all about accountability. Right. And when I talk to older generations of uh, like managers or corporate leaders or attorneys, one of the, you know, very constant message I keep sending me is that there is a fragile workforce, a, a fragile workforce that is unable to receive critical feedback, constructive feedback. And that is the problem with overprotecting a generation of kids is that they do not have the thick skin and the willingness to be able to accept emotion without it defining who they are. They don't even know how to do that. They're just really skilled at diverting responsibility and blaming. Right. Um, Remember we talked about Carol Dweck's research? Yes. uh, Fixed mindset versus growth mindset. Mm -hmm. And that's worth talking about in here because there's a strong strong correlation between uh, certain specific coping mechanisms and mindsets as it relates to life success so let's just kind of go with the fixed mindset because this i think is a consequence of over-involved parenting when you have a fixed mindset um, it's everything about your success in this world is kind of fixed or limited, right? In some ways, you know, you are, you only have a, um, a certain fixed ability to be able to have success. So if you get a, a a C on a test, well, you're average and that's like somehow it defines you. Mm -hmm. Um, if you get an A, then you're great, right? It's like, it's the restrictions of those. And there's certain ways that someone with a fixed mindset, um, has a tendency when there's challenges to avoid them because of that feel of failure with obstacles they give up easily right um effort effort is seen as as fruitless because it's not going to be able to provide you the outcome and criticism negative feedback is either ignored or carefully defended and people believe that the success of other people is less about your own intrinsic ability but more about fairness or what someone else can provide you now tell me that doesn't come that isn't learned directly from the intrusive parent who responds in that way and in comparison when you think about someone who has a growth mindset every struggle is just an opportunity to learn something and to get 
better. Mm -hmm. So you have a tendency to embrace challenges, persist in the face of setbacks, see effort, work ethic, and discipline as um, a path to mastery, which it is, right? No one's going to be good at something from the beginning. And when you get feedback, it's an opportunity again to learn from that criticism as a way to strengthen your weaknesses or get better. So you find these lessons in and inspiration from like success in other people or feedback from mentors. And as a result, they seem to have higher levels of achievement where somebody who might have a fixed mindset um, plateaus early and does not achieve their full potential. And if parents who are of the helicopter mindset can take a different viewpoint where your the struggle of your kids the failure of your kids the rejection of your kids is not something that is necessarily going to impede their progress but if handled in the most appropriate or effective way is actually an opportunity to build strength Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.